0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It is good to be in the house of the Lord today. And we'll be finding ourselves back in Revelation chapter 20 this morning. After a slight diversion last week, we come back to Revelation 20 this week. We're going to wrap up chapter 20 today. Chapter 20 has been described as stark, barren, unembellished. <laughs> but also the most sorrowful section of scripture because it is the heavy weight of the righteous and holy judgment of God. It is a day of reckoning. It is a day of recompense, a day of revelation and great sorrow, a day of horror and shame, a day of books and of judgment. But it is also the last judgment of God After this, God will no longer need to judge. His judgment will be complete. It will be final. This section of scripture has been known as the great white throne of judgment. And great is that throne and great is the judgment. MacArthur had this to say of the day. For there is no judgment ever like this one. There will be no debate over innocence or guilt. There will be a prosecutor, but no defender. There will be an accuser, but no advocate. There will be indictment, but no defense mounted by the accused. The convicting evidence will be presented with no rebuttal nor cross-examination. There will be an utterly unsympathetic judge and no jury. There will be no appeal of the sentence he pronounces. The guilty will be punished eternally with no possibility of parole in a prison from which there will never be escape. That is what we're looking at this morning. We are looking at the context of the great judgment of God on all unbelievers throughout all of history. Again, this day of horror and shame falls squarely upon the shoulders of those who make that choice. Think about, in your lives, making a decision that so impacts your life that for all eternity you would lament it. For all eternity, your conscience will continue to dig and continue to defile and continue to push and pressure and prod and remind you of the choice that you willingly made, a choice you can never take back. you can never change. Satan is the father of lies, right? We get that from Johnny 44. Jesus said that. And in his being the father of lies, he has deluded and distracted the human race from two great truths. That God is holy and God will judge. And that man is accountable to that God. But he has two great lies that he has propagated since the garden. Firstly, atheism. The ungodly idea of evolution. Man is nothing more than a mere animal. He is nothing more than a mere happenstance of molecules and atoms. He has no value. He has no worth. He has no accountability because when he dies, there is no existence. And in that, we wonder why people treat others like animals. That others can treat others without respect or regard for person or life. Those who treat God's creation with bloodlust and hatred and cruelty. It is not just man who treats man with dishonor and disrespect and hatred. He treats all of God's creation that way. Because there is no accountability. I am here to get what I deserve and nothing more. There is nothing greater than to please myself in my existence now because for tomorrow I die and I am no more. That is the great, bold lie of atheism. The second one is very similar. False religion. Because Satan knows that God has made man irrevocably religious, He has to fill that void with religion. He is not stupid. He knows his enemy. He knows his hatred of his enemy, and therefore he gives him the teacup of religion. Pour into it whatever mixture you can concoct and enjoy it. Take of it. Drink of it. Be satisfied in it, and yet you're never satisfied. Because there is no religion that satisfies. Save the blood of Christ and Christianity. Because God promises satisfaction. God promises your thirst will be satisfied. Your hunger will be filled. But there is a stipulation. You must hunger and thirst for righteousness and find that in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. There is nothing outside of that that will satisfy. There is nothing outside of that that will bring hope. There is nothing outside of that that will bring peace. Therefore, when God says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, He's saying, pray for their salvation. Because outside of Christ, there is no peace. There is only truth that God is judge. And he will judge the world in righteousness. And we find this all over the word. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy is a great book. Again, one of, one of many that I enjoy. But Deuteronomy is a great book of remembrance. It is a remembering of the law. It is a remembering of the good things that God has done and decreed. But in the song of Moses in verse 4 of chapter 32, we find the great truth that God is a God of justice. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Moses is giving us the picture of God as judge. And he is judged not because there is any outside pressures upon God to make him just, but because that's his character. That's who he is. That is his being. His essence is righteousness and holiness. Therefore, he must judge sin. Turn to the book of Job, chapter 37. Job, chapter 37. There is another young man among the friends of Job, and his name was Elihu. And Elihu spoke at the last, and he was never accused by God of speaking unjust things. He was not condemned along with Job's three friends. And this young man spoke great truths of God, and in verses 23 and 24 he says this, The Almighty... We cannot find him. He is exalted in power, and he will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him, for he does not regard any who are wise of heart. He speaks of the great truth that God's character is so righteous that he is perfectly just, that he will never do violence to injustice. But every man has done violence to the law of God. Every man is held accountable for that violence that he has done to the law of God. Because God is holy and righteous and perfect. And man has stomped on the righteousness and holiness of God. Man has spit upon the throne room of God's floor saying, not for me. All of us are born in sin. All of us were conceived and birthed in sin all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one man who has walked this earth save the Lord Jesus Christ that was without sin and needed to repent. And because of that, God is just and will judge the hearts and thoughts of man. No one is without that judgment. And therefore we have the gospel. Therefore we have the truth. That in Christ alone, we can escape the wrath of God for his judgment of justice that we all deserve. There is not one man alive, past, present, future, that does not deserve the righteous, just wrath of God. And because of that, we needed a Savior. And because of that, God provided one. But who stands here in the great assembly? Turn to Psalm chapter 81. And why do they stand there? Psalm 81 gives us an answer. Psalm 81, it is a psalm of Asaph. is many psalms and a lot of truth. <coughs> Excuse me. Psalm 81 and verse 11. This is with the word of God. But my people did not listen to my voice and Israel did not obey me. It is for a lack of obedience. And obedience is stemmed from love and faith. It is stemmed from a truth of the love that we have. We either love disobedience and our sin or we love God and we love righteousness and obedience. There is no second choice. There is no other way to go about it. We either love or we do not. We either obey or we do not. This truth is echoed by Jesus in John chapter 5. In the book of John chapter 5, verse uh, verse 40, Jesus has this to say. John chapter 5 and verse 40. Jesus says this, And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life that is our judgment. You believe or you don't. There's not another way. God has never provided another way. It's belief in Christ or it's not. That's it. And that's what we have in view this morning as we are going to be going through our text here in Revelation 20. And it is righteous and God will be magnified and glorified through it as horrible as it is God is glorified because it's right and good that God judges sin sometimes it's a hard truth that we wrestle with is it not it's a hard truth to wrestle with the fact that in the damnation of sinners God is glorified Some things in scripture are hard to wrap your mind around. That's one of them. It's a truth that we all hold to is true because we know God's character and we know that it's true. But sometimes it's hard. But just because it's hard doesn't make it any less true. It doesn't detract from the greatness of who God is. It continues to amplify the glorious character of who God is. God has displayed all the entirety of his character to mankind. And we are responsible for what we do with that. But let's pray this morning and let's get into our text. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, again for this day that we have to worship specifically as your people gathered around the throne of grace. For it is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, Father, it is for your glory alone. And we understand this by the scriptures alone. Lord, you have placed your word here before us as a tool to teach us more of who you are, to bring us into submission, to bring us unto a humble heart, a heart broken before you because of our lack. And you fill us up through your word with truth and righteousness and love and godly character. Father, we just pray that you will continue to shape us, that you will continue to fashion us into tools of righteousness. People of love and compassion, but people who are bold, standing upon the truths of your word, for they are everlasting and enduring. And Father, for those who Go to churches that do not preach the word. Father, may you make a way that they may hear the truth of your word, and that their hearts may be turned to righteousness from unrighteousness. Father, we just ask that you would bless this time, that your name would be glorified, that you would be honored, that your word would be heard, and, Father, that we would continue to be changed in your presence because your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, may we be shaped by that truth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Come now to our text, it's books of remembrance. Let's start reading in chapter 20 and verse 11. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. From whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is our text this morning. This is where we find ourselves out in the narrative of human history. This is the next step. We're going to look at this in three scenarios. And first we're going to look at the stage because John, in an unembellished way, again, this is a very plain text. Much of Revelation that we read about is embellished with great brilliance and ideas and thoughts and visions. And this one is not. This one is very stark and plain. I can't imagine John writing this and seeing this and not being affected by it. And just as John was affected, I pray that our hearts are affected by the truth. We're going to look at the stage, verses 11 and part of 12. It says, And then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. John here again starts for us that common phrase that we keep seeing, then I saw. He's continuing the narrative. And we're continuing on after the millennial kingdom and before the new heavens and new earth that are yet to come. We're seeing a time of judgment. We're seeing here great and small. Many people. But what does John notice first? First he notices a great white throne. It's mentioned almost 50 times the throne of God in the book of Revelation alone. But it says here that it's great. And it is not great only because it's great in size. Because we saw just back up in uh, verses verse 4 of this chapter that there are many thrones that were set up in judging the nations. But this throne is greater. It's greater in size and proportion, but it's greater because of the one who sits upon it. This is the enduring, everlasting throne of David. This is the throne that Christ himself sits upon. It is great because he who sits upon it is great. And it has a great purpose. It is white, signifying purity and holiness and justice without blemish, without spot, without partiality we do not see seats like this in our culture or even in our world because man sits upon those seats of judgment and he's corrupt and he's unwilling to yield to the truth of God this seat will be a perfect seat of judgment there will be no need for a jury because the verdict is perfect because the verdict is holy and righteous and true and with complete authority. It is the person of Jesus Christ who sits upon this throne. It is His throne with which He will judge the nations. i want to look at a few scriptures that help give us perspective of this throne. In Psalm chapter 9, we read, we read this in Psalm chapter 9. If I can get there. Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8. The Lord abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment. And He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. God has promised judgment for all mankind. Then, in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel saw a vision very similar. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. And Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the ancient of days took his seat, and his vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads of myriads were standing before him and the court sat and the books were opened. I don't know about you, but the terrifying reality of the wrath of God sitting on his judgment seat to judge the hearts and thoughts of man is terrifying. If you do not find it terrifying, I would encourage you to search the scriptures to see who God is and his wrath. God's judgment is not a mere trifle of a thing. It is eternal. It is intense. How do we know that? Look at who God is. Everything about Him is overwhelming. All His characteristics are beyond our comprehension in their entirety. So is His wrath and His justice. Picture We have ourselves here seated before God today. We have mercy and grace. And we're grateful for that. That's why we're here, right? To rejoice and to worship a God who has extended grace and mercy. Picture God without grace and mercy. It's terrifying. It's a terrifying thing to fall under the judgmental hand of God. Without Christ to intervene. Because it is Christ who judges here. Scriptures tells us this is a resurrection of judgment. Jesus said that in John chapter 5. Specifically in verse 29. This is a day of judgment. Paul speaks about it in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2 verse 5 he says this, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. In a day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Paul pulled no punches. If you continue to hearken to the voice of your flesh and to your sin, you will face the wrath and judgment of God. If you continue to harden your heart, as we're reading of Pharaoh here in Egypt, he continued to harden his heart to the point where God says, I will harden his heart, myself. We see people lost in our culture today because God has given them over to a debased mind. It is terrifying to be on the wrong side of Christ and the cross. To be on the side that cries out, crucify! Instead of the side that says, Lord, that is my punishment. It is mine, and yet I cannot bear it. And you provided a way. But who is Christ judging at this point? Well, we know that it is not believers. And praise God for that. But here we're going to see who is judging. Revelation 22 verse 1 gives us a picture. And then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And verse 3, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. God Eternal sits upon His throne. And that's God who we see here. But specifically, the person of Christ. God the Father has removed Himself from this judgment. And the Scripture tells us that. Turn to John chapter 5 with me this morning. We're going to look at some spots in Scripture that helps us extrapolate this understanding so that we can take the full context of God's Word and understand it. John chapter 5 and verse 22 These are the words of Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone. Why? But He has given all judgment to the Son. Then jump down to verse 26. For just as the Father Himself has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment, because He is the Son of Man. Jesus himself says, the Father has positioned me to judge. Well, does the rest of the Scripture say that? Yes. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Acts, chapter 10, verse 42. Acts 10, verse 42. This is the words of Peter. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, speaking of Jesus, who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Peter understood this. It was preached in the early church. Turn over a couple pages to chapter 17 in the book of Acts. Chapter 17, verse 31. This is the great sermon of Mars Hill that Paul preached in Athens. And here he says this in verse 31. Actually, let's back up to 30 because it's a great context. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed furnishing proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The judge is is Christ. Romans 2. Flip over a few pages. Romans 2, verse 16. Romans 2, verse 16. And on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The scriptures are emphatic. It is Christ who sits as judgment and judge upon sinners. One more. 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1. I solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. And he goes on, preach the word. And that's what we're looking at. The word signifies it is Christ who will judge the world. Judgment has been given to the Son by the authority of the Father. And he will judge perfectly to the glory of his name. Without partiality. Scripture tells us God is not partial to no man, to no one. So that was him who sat upon the throne here. And then we see a very interesting thing. And it says, From whose presence earth and heaven has fled away, and no place was found from them. Do you know what this is? Uncreation. Uncreation. There is no longer any room for heaven and earth. Why? Because it is tainted with sin. Even though the millennial kingdom will be brought back to a more ideal it is still tainted with sin there is still death there's still a curse god will not abide sin therefore heaven and earth will be destroyed how do we know that do you know that god is not quiet on that either turn to second peter chapter Second peter chapter three god teaches this in his word that he will uncreate that which he created 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and in godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Because of sin, Peter says, the earth and the heavens as we know were going to be destroyed. God is not quiet. So we have the law of thermodynamics. You guys know what that is? John, I know you do, Todd. Yeah, right? Good job, teachers, teaching your students well. I see a lot of these young heads bobbing. That's good. Law of thermodynamics. Matter cannot be uncreated. You know what? God says it can. God spoke, and there is matter. God speaks, and it is gone. God is able to do it. David Barnhouse had a quote. I'm going to read it for you this morning. There is to be an end of all the material heavens and the earth which we know. It is not that they are to be purified and rehabilitated, but that the reverse of creation is to take place. They are to be uncreated. For as they came from nothing at the word of God, they are going to be sucked back into that same nothingness by that same word of God. God knows what He's doing and how He does it. God is going to get rid of all tainted creation that has tainted with sin. We are going to one day find the joyous blessing of no sin. No taint of it. No trace. No atom. No nothing of it. It will be done away with. And I'm sorry, but none of y'all or myself can imagine that. But it is going to be great. And we know that. And we rejoice in that fact. So if we have the uncreation of the world, what do we have here? What's left? There's a great void at this time. That's what you can infer from it. Those who are standing before the throne of God, there is a great void, because the new heavens and the new earth haven't come yet. And God has destroyed the previous heavens and the earth. So we have this great vast void, inconceivable nothingness. And we see the courtroom of God. But the last living believers will be blessed before the earth is destroyed, they will be blessed with miraculous translation, just like Enoch, just like Elijah, just like the raptured church. They will be translated out of the kingdom of Christ to be with him forever. But what about the unbelieving dead? The scriptures speak a lot of that. John chapter 5 verse 29 says, this will be the resurrection of judgment. Judgment. Daniel 12, verse 2 says this is a resurrection of disgrace and everlasting contempt. Acts chapter 24, verse 15 says this is the resurrection of the wicked. This is the second resurrection versus the first. Earlier in chapter 20, in verse 6, I'm going to read that for you. In Revelation 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. For over these, the second death has no power. We are speaking of the second resurrection. And how do we know that it's not believers? Well, there's some great truths of God's word that speak to this very matter. Romans 8 verse 1. There is thou therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If there is none, it can't be believers. Because this is a throne of judgment. John chapter 3. I'll know verse 16, but what about 18? Verse 18 says, who believes in him shall not be judged. So there's no judgment. John chapter 5, verse 24. Those do not come into judgment who believe in the Son of Man. So if there's no judgment for those who believe, this can only be unbelievers of all ages. The judgment seat. Of Christ here. The great white throne of judgment. Is reserved for those who do not believe. For those who have. Trampled underfoot the son of God. For those who have. Hearkened to the voice. Of the father of lies. Those who stand in their pride. And their arrogance. And say there is no God. Whom I will serve. That's. Who we see here. Both great. And. And small, the scripture says. He says, I see the dead, great and small. There's a great quote by John Phillips I'm going to read for you this morning. It fits very well with this speaking of this judgment and the great and the small. And John Phillips says this, there is a terrible fellowship here. The dead, small and great, standing before God. Dead souls are united to dead bodies in a fellowship of horror and disrepair. Little men and paltry women whose lives were filled with pettiness, selfishness, and nasty little sins will be there. Those whose lives amounted to nothing will be there. Whose very sins were drab and dowdy, mean, spiteful, peevish, groveling, vulgar, common, and cheap. The great will be there. Men who have sinned with a high hand, with a dash and with courage and flair. Men like Alexander and Napoleon, Hitler and Stalin will be present. Men who went in for wickedness on a grand scale with the world as their stage and who died unrepentant at the last. Now one and all are arraigned and on their way to be damned. A horrible fellowship congregated together for the first and the last time. God shows no partiality. No matter who you are in this life, it means nothing without the blood of Christ. You can be the greatest man on earth according to worldly standards, and you will still be judged as the most lowly man. Without Christ. There's no hope without Christ. There is no way to stand before judgment. All will be judged on the basis of that decision. All of us, everyone, leads us to our second point this morning: the standard and the books, verses twelve and part of thirteen, or twelve and thirteen. And he says here, And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. We have books. Books of remembrance. God is going to judge according to the books. What are these books? They're books of the deeds and thoughts and actions of men, perfectly kept by a perfect keeper. God will judge everything. Unbelievers will be judged upon every thought and intention of the heart, upon every action, and upon everything that they are ignorant of. Because as people, we understand we don't always see all the things that we do. We don't always understand that the intention of our heart may be different than what we think it is. But God knows and perfectly keeps record of it. And they will be judged according to their deeds. Well, let's look at a few verses in Scripture to compare and contrast. Again, I love using the Word of God to continue to show that God's Word is cohesive. It fits perfectly. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48. We have the perfect standard, right? Matthew 5, 48. I don't even need to turn there this morning. It's very simple. Jesus says, Be perfect, for my Heavenly Father is perfect. That is the standard by which we will be judged. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter echoes the sentiments of The book of Leviticus. But in 1 Peter 1 verse 15 he says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written you shall be holy for I am holy. That is the standard. The books of remembrance are measuring what they have done with that standard. Be perfect for your Heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection is the standard that was attained and shown through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Perfection is our standard. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 gives us another glimpse. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then James chapter 2 And verse 10 tells us this. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. We are judged by our actions if we are unbelievers. And if we stumble at yet the smallest point of the law, we are guilty of all of it. That is the standard to which we are held. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. Y'all know this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, the command be perfect because I am perfect. You cannot attain to. There is no way. Therefore, you will be judged based upon that. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this as well. Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It makes it very abundantly clear The standard is set, and there is no one that meets the standard, save Christ alone, and those who are found in Christ. But since we are speaking of those who are not believers, they have nothing on which to stand upon. They have no plea. They have no one to stand and advocate for them. Christ is the perfect advocate for believers. He is our perfect high priest, making intercession for His children. They have not that because he sits on throne of judgment. They have no advocate. They have no one there to plead their case before a holy and righteous God. He has his standard. You will be perfect. You will fulfill the law perfectly. You will live righteously. And the scripture tells us there is not one that can do that or has done that, nor ever will, save Christ and Christ alone. But since he is sitting in judgment, they cannot plead for the blood of Christ because they have trampled on underfoot. Payment was made and offered and rejected. Turn to Isaiah 53, please. Isaiah 53. We all know Isaiah 53 well. But in Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 we have this. But he speaking of Jesus was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we were healed. For all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. God is clear: There was one way for man to escape judgment. Just one. And it was the perfect Lamb of God. And now that perfect Lamb of God is judging those who rejected that truth. Payment was offered, but it was rejected. I'm going to read a few verses for you. In Galatians 3, and verse 13, Paul says this. Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, again, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. God supplies the need. Second Corinthians, chapter five, verse twenty-one. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then First Peter two four. 1 Peter two four, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. And then in verse 24, And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. But back there it says, Men reject that which God supplied. I'm going to read a little bit more for you. 2 Thessalonians one nine. Now we look at the outcome. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. These who reject. Psalm 44. Psalm 44 says this. Verse 21. Would not God find this out for he knows the secrets of the heart you cannot hide your sin they will not be able to hide their sin because the books are perfectly filled out god knows our hearts romans chapter 2 verse 16 the apostle paul had this to say romans 2 verse 16 For on that day, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Again, there is nothing that was hidden that will not be made known. There is nothing that was covered in darkness that will not be brought to light. Man will have no excuse before a righteous judge who knows all things. Now I'm going to walk through the Gospels a little bit. Luke chapter 8. Luke 8 and verse 17. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Again, Christ's own words. He's telling you, I know your heart and your deeds. You can hide nothing from the piercing, holy eyes of God. And then in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 37. Jesus says this, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Man will be held accountable, not just for his thoughts and his heart, but for his words. That which he says, that which he approves, that which he rejects. Solomon and the wisdom given him in Ecclesiastes. No, that's Abigail's favorite book. But in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Man will be accountable for his heart, his thoughts, his words, and his actions. God is very specific. And then back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. Matthew 16, verse 27 For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and then repay every man according to his deeds. Again, man will be held accountable for everything. Your thoughts, your actions, your intents, your words, your deeds. There is nothing that will not be judged according to the perfect standard of Christ. What about those who don't know? What about those who have never heard the gospel preached? God says ignorance is not an answer. God says ignorance is not the way out. How do we know that? Paul gives us a very clear understanding of that. Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which was made so they are without excuse. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written upon their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Romans 2, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. There is nobody that is not going to be judged for his belief or his lack of belief, I should say. We either believe or we do not. Ignorance is not an answer. I had an interesting discussion with my family. And they kind of were like, whoa, wait, hold up, what are you talking about? And it was kind of fun. And I said that God will punish the wicked with degrees of punishment. And they are like, mm, no, everybody goes to hell. Yes, that's true. But their punishment will not all be equal. Because God is not without partiality. God judges based on your sin. How do we know this? There's scripture to back it up. We'll go to the book of Matthew chapter 10. Christ spoke of this Matthew 10 verses 14 and 15 Matthew 10 verses 14 and 15 when he was sending out the disciples to go and to preach the gospel he says this whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of their house or that city shake the dust off your feet Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. God holds accountable people who hear the gospel as opposed to those who have not. Matthew 11, verses 21 and through 24, Christ says this, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles have occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than it will be for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. God is very explicit. The gospel is the standard. And those who openly reject the gospel, purposely reject the blood of Christ, will be judged harsher. Go to the gospel of Mark, chapter 12. I know it seems like I'm pushing pretty hard on some of this, but I think it's worth our time. Matthew, I mean Mark, chapter 12, verse 38. In his teaching, speaking of Jesus, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, who like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses, and for appearance' sake offer long prayers." These will receive greater condemnation. It is a warning to those who preach in the pulpits. Those who lead. Those who seek to put men in subjection to what they teach. And we are all held accountable for that. And those who do it wrongly, those who preach a false gospel, will be held to a high standard and accounting. Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Luke, chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. Speaking in a parable, Jesus says, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready, nor act in accordance with his will, will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it, speaking of the master's will, and committed deeds worthy of flogging, will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Christ is saying, those who have understood the Master's will and have not done it will receive more flogging than those who did not know the Master's will and still did not do it. There is an accounting in our day and age because man has the book. We have the word of God completed for us today. Not only do we have it here, but we have it on the internet. We have it in books. We have it on media. It doesn't take much of any effort to find the Bible. And those who have access to it and who have read it and who have heard it will be held to a harsher standard of punishment. When they reject it. Why? Hebrews 10.29 gives us the answer is why. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? be careful of insulting the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Again, while there are degrees of punishment, all will suffer. Hell will not be a place that is not filled with torment and suffering and punishment. But as the dead are judged with the books of remembrance, the books of their deeds and their thoughts and their words and their actions, another book is opened and it's the book of life. The book of life has appeared several times in the book of Revelation so far. It is like a city who keeps record of its citizens. That's the book of life. It is those who are the citizens of heaven, who are of the kingdom of Christ, who are of the kingdom of God and his beloved Son. And it says here, any who are not found in the book of life, were judged. Here comes the great truth that Christ taught in his earthly ministry that is some of the scariest language in all of scripture. He says in Matthew 7, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy? Did I not do miracles? Did I not cast out demons? Did I not do all these things in your name? And what did Jesus say? Depart from me, for I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. These are some of the scariest words. All of us in our hearts seek to hear the words of, well done, my good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the words that we long to hear. But those who sit under the judgment seat of God, the great white throne of judgment, will never hear those words. It will be, depart from me, for I never knew you. It's a harsh reality, and yet it's true. So many, thinking they are about the Lord's work, will find themselves lacking not because they believed and lost their salvation, but because they never believed in the first place. They never rested in the full work of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. We come to our last point this morning and it's the sentence. I'm going to just talk about verse 13 really quickly before you get there it says the sea gave up the dead which were in it the sea signified great depths right hardest place for god to bring somebody back up out of think about the flood how many people were buried and who knows where they are the earth was changed greatly in topography and then look at all the judgments that happen throughout the trumpets and seals and bowls god will raise up the dead From the sea and death, which is those in the land, and Hades. Hades, again, being the resting place, or not resting place, the holding place of the damned, of those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. But everything was given up and everything was judged. And then we find the sentence verses 14 and 15. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The unbelieving dead will be united with a specifically and specially designed body to endure hell for eternity. It will be a physical torment, an emotional one, a spiritual one, it will not be one that we should think on long way. Everybody will receive a resurrection body. The scriptures tell us that. Either to life and glory or to another death and punishment for eternity. There is no, just no coming back. There is no, it's just done. There will be a conscious physical resurrection. Spirits united with bodies again. This one is not a good one. It weighs on our hearts and I know as many of you have many people that you can think of right now who do not believe. Loved ones. People at work. Just people that you know. And it's heartrending because they continue to to walk in a hardness of heart, and they continue to walk upon the broad path that leads to destruction. They continue to trample underfoot the Son of God. But the Scriptures remind us they are going to be fishers of men, because there's hope until they breathe their last. Because God can redeem the irredeemable. If He couldn't, we wouldn't be here. If he couldn't, the word of God wouldn't be true. But it says here that they were thrown into the lake of fire. The word lake of fire can be translated from the Greek word Gehenna. It was also used often in the New Testament. And it was speaking of the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And it's important, it's actually spoken of in the Old Testament in 2 Kings 23, Isaiah 30, Jeremiah chapter 7 and chapter 19. It was also back then called Topheth. And the significance of that is Topheth, or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, or Gehenna, was a place where Israel first started practicing child sacrifice to Molech. And then in Jesus' day, do you know what it was? It was a garbage dump. They burned garbage continuously. It was filled with maggots and foul smells. They used to throw criminal bodies there and let them burn up in the fire. The fires were kept ablaze continuously in the days of Christ. This is the valley to which Christ is referring. Hell will be like. It will be the cosmic dump of all the ungodly of all the ages. It's quite fitting. It's not a place that we want to go, but Scripture tells us that it is a place of fire. Whether physical fire or not, I don't know. Bible is not super clear on that, but there will be fire of some sort. There will be total darkness, isolating inmates one from another. When you have total darkness and you can't see, you can't see so many people have a false idea that i'm going to go to hell and it's going to be a party and i'm going to see all my friends there no you're not it's not what the scriptures tell us it's a place of fire and total darkness the verbiage that christ uses is where the worm will not die what does that signify the worm of your conscience it will eat away at you you have all eternity to feel the shame and the weight of your decision to reject the blood of christ I don't know about you, but shame and guilt can do great damage to a person who's alive. Many people become sick. Many people become immobilized and unable to do anything. Guilt and shame is heavy. If you don't know it, think back to when you weren't saved. Guilt and shame weighed heavily. This is where your conscience will continue to accuse you of the choice that you never made. place of banishment from the kingdom of God from his goodness and his love and his grace and his mercy it is a place of unending sorrow it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth it is not a place to which any of us would long to go nor is it a place to wish we would wish anybody to go There's only one way to avoid that horrific fate. And the beauty of it is, as these are books of remembrance of the deeds of men, the one way is for us to remember the deeds of Christ and what He did. The blood and the body of Christ upon the cross of Calvary, broken, beaten, spit upon, disgraced, shamed, and enduring the eternal wrath of God for our behalf. The punishment that was due us fell to him. We have an opportunity to remember what Christ has done. And I'm going to end with a stark warning that the author of Hebrews writes. The Old Testament, New Testament book. The author of Hebrews, my pages keep falling together here. The author of Hebrews says this in chapter 10 For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment, and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. For anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. But how much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. For it is terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. And then he goes on to say, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And then he tells you, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a little while, he who is coming will come. And he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Let us all continue with perseverance, steadfastness of heart, that we may remember what Christ has done, and that we may share that truth with a world that rejects the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that we do not need to fear the day of judgment. We thank You that You have given us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. We thank you that you are continuing to unstiffen our necks. Father, we are not perfect. But we are perfect in Christ Jesus alone. Father, we have far to go. And yet you carry us through our days. We thank you that we are no longer tainted with sin. But we are clothed with the imputed righteousness of Christ. One day to inherit intrinsic righteousness. To no longer be capable of sin. Or shame. Or guilt. We thank you that we have that joy. And that our joy is made complete. Because the work of Christ is complete. And we know that because he has sat down at the right hand of your glory. And because on the cross he said it is finished. We thank you that we no longer doubt. We thank you that we are no longer tossed to and fro, but that we stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, give us the grace and the strength to never pervert it. Give us the grace and the strength to be bold of the truth of Jesus Christ and what He did on that cross of Calvary. Father, may we not shrink back in the face of adversity may we not shrink back in the face of persecution but may we stand all the more firm resting in the strength of Jesus Christ may we continue to run to you who are our high tower may we continue to find joy in your presence and may we continue to be refined and sharpened by your word. And may it all be for the glory of Christ and of you, our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.